welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, fellow Alliance Council members. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that examines the work of Star Wars creators. I am one of your hosts, John, and with me is Mike. Hey, how's it going? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I think that probably uh, on top of mind right now is what we'll be talking about this week, which would be uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, or part of the Star Wars anthology, or Star Wars Rogue One. Depending it's just on... called Rogue One. Yeah, there's no That's Star Wars. That's all it is, just yeah. Rogue One, you know? That was kind of surprising, I thought. Uh, I, th- I, th- I thought it was going to be Star Wars. I thought that we were going to get the Star Wars, and then it just said Rogue One. That's what I thought. You know, I, you know, I, uh, you know, let, let's uh, let let's do this as we build our way to our final thoughts on the movie. Um, instead of giving, you know, like the the final thoughts or synopses, I would like for us to look at our expectations going in, and not like what they were or anything like that, but. Was there anything that hit a note of expectation that you had, or was there anything that subverted an expectation that you had, or that was you know just a flat out surprise? Um, that's an interesting question. Like, so what lived up to expectations in a sense, or yeah. or surpassed them, or or was different, and so it, like it was a neutral. It didn't surpass or fall beneath, but it just wasn't what you expected. Yeah. Um. I think, hmm, interesting. I mean, I, I think I, you know, I, I sort of uh, jumped to the end, and uh, th- there's there's some stuff that they did in there which I thought was rather interesting that I wasn't really expecting in terms of, oh, if anyone hasn't seen the movie, we're gonna spoil the hell out yeah. of it. Yes. If you're if you're watch if you're listening to this the day after you know the movie comes out, we we're expecting that you seen the movie sorry um yes yeah no holds no holds uh barred on this one not at all yeah i i guess uh w- you know thinking about the end of the movie I, I think that that was um really well done in a sense in terms of how it weaved into uh the the you know episode four uh, but aside from that i think what i appreciated the most in the movie was the way that it sort of tied into uh, the rest of the movie. When I when I say appreciate the most, I mean in terms of like what my expectations were and surpassing whatever you know. I, right. I like how how it really sort of tied into the entire uh, universe, the entire canon, and not just you know the other movies, you know, or or even just the original trilogy, but you know, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of references to, for example, Rebels, you know, which I, th- I was kind of surprised that they would do that. But at the same time, why wouldn't you do that? So, you know, I guess I guess that that's what I found to be most interesting in terms of what my expectations were and, you know, how it exceeded them in some regards. Yeah. In, in terms of subverting them. Um I was expecting to see a lot of uh, scenes, which I, I really, really liked in the trailers. <laughs> uh huh. You mean like <laughs> I rebel, like mm-hmm. I rebel, or like the fact that I was wearing a shirt, you know, which said <laughs> "All the Way" on it. Yeah. Um. You know, neither of those lines are in the movie. You know, the the shot which you know sort of made me fall in love with the trailer. You know, with her in in the uh, the the imperial garb as those lights come up you know you yep. know, saw Guerrera saying his whole thing what what will you do if they catch you blah 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 basically yeah. everything that entire character of Jin, you know i mean it's it's weird not to mention like shots of people you know dodging laser blasts from adats i mean all of the yeah. iconic stuff that you saw in that you know all of the trailer moment shots yes. and everything nothing's in that movie and that was for me the most surprising because it was uh you know you you watch the movie and you sort of absorb it 
And then, you know, in the aftermath, as you're you're walking out, you're right. You, you sit there and you're like, oh, wait, that line was wait. That wasn't that wasn't in there. Wait, that wasn't it. Because there's one shot uh, that I fell in love. The, sh- the shot that I fell in love with from the trailers was the one of Krennic holding his gun, standing obviously on the Death Star, you know, and like staring and like, you know, that he's waiting for somebody, you know, I there are fingerprints, of course, not even just looking at the trailers. The The thing that sort of like blew my mind, there were two things that, that completely caught me off guard that blew my mind in a sense. One was, yeah, it, it was very there. Were the, there were fingerprints of the reshoots all of they really did. It was 40 percent of the movie, at least mm-hmm. like I could sit there and I'd be like, yeah, that was inserted. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was reshot. Yeah, that was. You could tell, especially in the very first, like, 20, 30 minutes. There yeah. was, a, like, when they were jumping back and forth between places, I was like, oh, oh, because you get later in the film, and it's all referred to by exposition, and maybe this is just my personal taste, but I sat there and I realized that they probably inserted those things because some executive watched it and said, I don't get what's going on. We need to insert these scenes, and I would have been fine with them simply talking about what had you know and like building the tension that way and so you know that that was sort of something that caught me off guard um and tarkin yeah i figured he'd be in a scene or a shot or like one conversation but he was like a freaking character through the whole thing (laughs) i was like oh okay and the thing is that's not a knock because when i realized i mean they went for broke with it and i'm Mm -hmm. a fan of that i was like all right you know what embrace it yeah, do it. Let's go for this. Yeah, there's a lot of people online who are like, "Ooh, that that looked bad," and I'm I don't know what they mean. I mean, I was no. sitting there. I mean, yeah, you can tell, you know, if you're watching for it. But like, I don't know. Like, if I didn't know that that guy was CGI, would I have been like, "This is weird. This there's something weird about this guy." I don't think I would have. You know, I think I would have just been like, "I don't know," you know. But yeah. I mean, it, it it looks really freaking good. I mean, I guess we had a taste of it recently in Ant Man with uh, Michael Douglas. Yep, and that that looked pretty good, uh, you know. But this, I think they they really kind of like took it to another level. I mean, you think about like the last time that it was fairly prominent was probably like Tron Legacy. Yes, and I think and uh, there uh, another show host uh, on the Nerd Party Network, uh, Sean Eastridge. I talked about it with him, and he said that he had a hard time plugging into the Tarkin character because of Tron Legacy. He said it just jogged his memory about Tron Legacy, and you know, and I, you know, my reply to him was like, "Screw you for talking bad about Tron Legacy, and I don't care." Oh, I mean, see, I took I took that as being like, "Oh man, this reminds me of Tron Legacy. That's such a good movie." He oh, meant man. he meant it as a jab, and oh. uh, he should be ashamed of himself. And I know he's listening. Tron Tron Legacy is fairly close to being a masterpiece i completely agree yeah but the you know i i would say that i think that there is there's going to be some fan base splitting with this um but i think that the people that love it this is by and large this is what people were wanting and expecting in 1999 i think something where it was a very clear line of heritage where it was in the story and how explicitly it sat within the canon with you know zero room for interpretation Uh, and i'm not saying that as a dig i'm saying that like lucas did his own thing and said you know i'm not going to be a slave to expectation here and with this they very much said no this is a prequel the way that people want a prequel where it's very clearly tied together you know it's funny that you should say that because like when i was thinking about you know when i was trying to put my my thoughts on this movie into words like the first thing that kind of sprung to mind was this is the movie that you know I was wanting to see in 1999 but it's not for the reasons that you're talking about it's not for the you know direct you know lineage or anything like that what it is is the the direction you know and the fact that this movie is not a slave to the form of the saga you know, I okay. mean, there, there's, there's like a thing, and we saw it last year 
with Force Awakens, you know, but there's obviously like a, a look to Star Wars movies, which was established in A New Hope and which is carried through. And, you know, you, you compare Empire Strikes Back to any of Kirshner's other movies and you don't necessarily see any, you know, strong connections there. Um, because for one thing, Kirshner doesn't really have a definitive style, but also because it's very much in the same style as, you know, A New Hope. You know, same thing with Return of the Jedi. And then with the prequels, you know, Lucas was doing that, but with oh, a new weird thing as well. And, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, seeing like Force Awakens. And, you know, I think we talked about this last year over on Commentary Trek Stars. Um, it's very much a J.J. movie. And yet, at the same time, it feels like a quote-unquote Star Wars movie. Yes. This certainly feels like a Star Wars movie, too. But at the same time, I think the direction is a lot more daring. Not not in the sense mm-hmm. that it's like, oh, it's so much better directed than the, the, than the other movies. But it's more um, its own thing. You know? Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that, and I think that that is something that both of us have been on record as saying. You more so than me. Like it's sort of an idea that I've warmed up to, of the idea that when you know a director comes in, they should be allowed to put their stamp on it. You should, even though it's a Star Wars movie, you should sit down and say this is a J.J. Abrams movie, this is a Gareth Edwards movie. But doesn't that bring in because we've looked at Godzilla? Mm-hmm. Is there anything about this that uh, I mean, I know what my answer is, but is there anything about this where you would sit down and you would say, oh, that's a Gareth Edwards movie about this? Do you think that this survives the process and you can tell that this is a Gareth Edwards work? Or do you look at this and say, this is a studio work? This is reshoots and meddling? No, I think it does definitely uh, say Gareth Edwards. You know, I mean, the thing that that was really interesting about his style was sort of bringing a gritty realism to something which in the past hasn't had that, you know, sort of bringing a reality to this iconic property. And in, in, in the case of Godzilla, you know, mm-hmm. that was one thing. In the case of Star Wars, it's something else, you know, but it's it's similar in a lot of ways. And also the idea of sort of combining this you know, almost like indie documentary feel, you know, with like handheld cameras and, you know, camera placement and everything in in terms of like making it feel like the camera is, you know, sort of embedded in a war zone. Contrasting that with these amazing sort of like tableau shots of the entire environment from bird's eye views or uh you know mm-hmm. whatever or space eye views you know s- stuff like that where yeah. you know it, it's like this beautiful vista in a sense you know very still and very you know perfectly composed and kind of like showing um an environment you know like a cityscape or a landscape that you uh, aren't used to seeing because it's so alien you know we right. we saw that in in Godzilla a lot where it's like this is a familiar landscape which has been scarred by a monster. You know, here right. it's, you know, Star Wars worlds, you know, and, and I think that that, that contrast is, is really um, interesting and, and very much sort of speaks to his style. Yeah, well, I mean, I think his style comes through uh, in, in a large sense during the battle scenes because they were, you know, for me there, were, there was certain, um, you know, sort of camera motion uh, that was remnant like reminded me of you know the army people you know doing the halo jump and and stuff like that like I could see it there um and I think that uh for me what sort of what sort of jumped out was the performances and what's what I was able to you know compare and contrast looking at it was Abrams got a certain type of performance out of his cast and I think that Edwards gets a different type of performance out of his his cast that is like a more emotive Lucas style. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, one of the things I think, you know, if you, if you look at, at Lucas's dialogue, especially like in the prequels and everything like that, 
it is so sort of like laborious. You know what I mean? It's it can so, be, yes. It's so formal, you know, and, and it, even even when there's jokes, it, you know, I, I think that Lucas just really isn't that funny. You know what I mean? I mean, he's like, let me tell you a joke. And it's kind of like when my dad tells a joke, you know, well, where yeah, it's like... But, well, I mean, I, I mean, the, <laughs> the whole argument with the prequels, of course, is that that's reflective of the world. And if you take the way Vader speaks in the original trilogy, like it's very much the way everybody's speaking back in the prequel era and stuff. So let, you know, okay. That's I my think defense of it right there. That's, that's an interesting defense. That's a, that's an interesting, you know, retcon similar to uh, the way that they retcons the, uh, the death star being built after we see it in episode two in the separatist hands or whatever. But I, do I think that that's the reality? N- no, you know, I don't, I, I, I think that the reality is he's just not good at writing dialogue you know uh well okay um and 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 here's here's the thing about that right and this is why i bring it up because what you see in in this movie and in force awakens and in the original trilogy is you know what what we think of as better performances what we think of as more naturalistic performances and i think a lot of that has to do with you know what's being said i mean if it's, I, I no mean, no no I, the, the, this this <laughs> is the thing is i'm not i'm not like disagreeing with you i'm not doing this like laborious fanboy defense of lucas okay i i think uh-huh. that the prequels they evoke a mood that they're supposed to evoke and i think that the the dialogue contributes to that whether by design or you know like it's it's just a bug inherent in the system whatever that's fine yeah I do agree with you that the the dialogue in this flows much snappier. It's mm-hmm. more reminiscent of the original trilogy because it has more of that energy to it um, that, you know, to speak to your point about the jokes, yes. You know, when, when she shoots the droid and then K2SO comes, uh, you know, out of the corner and he says, you thought that was me. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, that is more original trilogy-esque. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like dismissing your point, and I, I have no intention to die on the hill of Lucas defense with, with the dialogue <laughs> stuff. I'm just adding a note there. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the question I have, because of how much we can tell just from the previews that was reshot, is mm-hmm. when I watched it, one of the impressions I got was that I was watching Edwards's work, and then there was this layer over top of it of other people's work like just just like sitting on top of it so like his stuff would would uh peek through and i almost feel like i could sit down with it and say okay that was that was edwards heavy that was edwards heavy oh that's where somebody else was behind the camera and edwards just said okay well i'll edit it in and and, or, or something like that i i don't know if that makes any sense to you or not but that it i very much got the impression and i you know i'm gonna keep going back to the the opening like that first, thir- like it opens beautifully, opens wonderfully, and then it jumps around for a bit, and it was just, and I, I won't lie, the first really disorienting thing for me was being in a Star Wars movie, they have always jumped from place to place, okay, they've always had, you know, uh, the prequels especially, uh, you know, the joke on set I remember was that it like 40% of the movie was on landing pads. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was all shots, you know, take, take a drink every time uh, a, a ship either takes off or lands. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and so, but, but with this, seeing that overlay of, you know, like telling you what planet you were on, especially when they were like, we have to go to Scarif. We got to get to Scarif. And then they fly there and it's like, Scarif. I was like, I'm not stupid, okay? I understand what's happening right now. You know, like, I, I those those sorts of overlays just really, it doesn't destroy the movie. It doesn't make me dislike it. But I was like, eh, do we really need this? This doesn't belong here sort of thing. Do you think it, I'm just holding on to an expectation of a Star Wars movie at that point? 
I mean, maybe it, it definitely like when I saw that stuff, I was like, wow, this is different, you know, and I think maybe that's part of the reason why they did it was to just be different. But I think it did help in a lot of ways. I think it's weird that there's one missing when you think about it. Yeah. Mustafar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't say. And I'm like, uh, guys, you broke yeah. your conceit here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that that was weird. Um, the thing that's stood out to me more than that, I think, is the fact that there were no wipes in between scenes, you know? Yeah. Star Wars is known for having very elaborate wipes when they're going from one location to the next, and there was none of that here, which which was, I mean, it's it's a bold choice, but, it, you know, it's yeah. it's really kind of speaking to the, the whole idea of, like, this is going to be different, this is going to be its own thing, you know? We don't have to follow the rules anymore, and that's what's really kind of exciting about it to me, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I mean... In- in terms of the writing, the 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 dialogue is crisp. Um, I just looking at it, the, the you know the fact that the you know story by and we went over this, uh, you know, in, in our first episode. Like Noel gets a story credit, Witta gets a story credit, and then it's Whites and Gilroy. Yeah, and it is really interesting to me because I would almost want to go through some more Whites and Gilroy movies and watch them and analyze them because I think you could tease out probably who like I could tell you like who was responsible for what you know in in terms of the dialogue or or something like that yeah you know I kind of like when because you know they had the, the world premiere and I was on Twitter and I was you know cautious about no spoilers but at the same time i was kind of like interested in people's reactions to it and at one point someone said something like oh the way that it weaves into you know episode four is really interesting and i don't even know how they did it at times and when i read that i was like oh no i read too much because what i started thinking about was born ultimatum and how that movie ties into uh, the Bourne supremacy, the one right before it. Yeah. And both both of those movies were written by Gilroy. And I'm like, did he do that? Did he Bourne Ultimatum, uh, you know, Rogue One? And he didn't. And I was that was actually kind of disappointing. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I was kind of expecting something like that. But that's not not what happened. I I don't know. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I I would like to watch more Gilroy stuff, but I'm wondering if maybe it's just you know Gilroy. I think probably is kind of like you know Carrie Fisher in a sense, you know, where he's mm. like a script doctor and, and and everything, and he'll come in and do stuff, you know, in order to fix things and and you know what she has said about that you know which i think is probably true of of most people who you know get hired for these jobs is you know it's not your job to put your own stamp on it it's your job to you know sort of like fit into whatever box has been established okay you know i mean but who knows exactly i mean with four writers and there's other uncredited writers we know that christopher McQuarrie did work on it one That's person true. one person who we didn't mention in that first episode is uh, scott Burns, the the guy who wrote um, Contagion, he he oh, he right. apparently worked on the script too. So you know, I mean, who knows? You know. Well, now now here's a, here's a question. This is, this is a question I wrestle with because I and I don't know what the answer is because for somebody who's not deeply steeped in Star Wars lore, uh, okay, Force Awakens has tremendous cross audience appeal. Even if you're not a Star Wars fan, like it's sort of like when JJ did, you know, Star Trek 09. If even if you're not a Star Trek fan, you're going to have a good time. And Mm -hmm. Force Awakens, I think, operates on the same level. And that's why it made, you know, two billion dollars. Do you see Rogue One having that same crossover appeal or is this strictly fans apply? And maybe we'll catch a couple of you on, you know, on the outset, but. Most people are going to come in and be like, "Eh, like, where do you think this lands?" I, I, I think it, it probably does land more on that end of the spectrum. I mean, just speaking from you know personal experience, I was talking to uh, a, someone who a, a coworker who was he he hadn't seen any Star Wars movies as far as I know, right? And he watched it, and he came out of the movie, and he's like, "I have no idea what was going on in that thing." Yeah. He had absolutely no idea. Right. And I think that that is, ah, you know, that 
it doesn't bother me. It doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film. But at the same time, something I've always enjoyed about the previous seven is that, well, eight technically because of Clone Wars. But I think Clone Wars falls into the same category where if you're not a diehard fan, good luck. Um, <laughs> but like with the with the other seven episodes... I could sit down and I could put on Empire Strikes Back for somebody. I could be like, watch this. And at the end, they'll be like, oh, yeah, more of that. More of that. What's going on? Mm -hmm. um, I still contend I could do the same thing with the prequels, but everybody tells me I'm nuts. But I don't think that I could bring somebody who's not a diehard fan into this. I think that there is so much about this that is... And I don't know how much of it was what Edwards brought in or how much of it was you know, forced on by Disney in terms of, you know, the, the fan service, you know, like that's, that's a question for me. I think most of the fan service stuff is stuff that, you know, it can, you can go either way, you know? I mean, like there's a lot of stuff in there where as a fan, you're like, Oh, Hey, look at that. So cool. But as just a regular viewer, you'd be like, whatever, that's obviously just some extra in the background or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, there's there's actually a very interesting um, discussion because I, I was having a conversation with somebody who, you know, beat up on The Force Awakens for all of the allusions to the original trilogy that it had. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, this was reminding me of the movie. It wasn't. I think that there, I mean, am I out of my mind? I thought there were just as many callbacks in this they, you know, like they, was that shot of R two and three PO even necessary? Yeah, there there were just as many callbacks, but I think most of them were integrated more naturally. Like okay. there were two, there were two in this movie where I was like, "Come on, guys!" One was when you see, uh, you know, Pondo Baba. And, oh, that uh, the other you dude. know, I, I that for me was, and just to, just to give everybody a. a piece of reference that one of the the thing i had to sort of come to peace with in force awakens was the holographic chest thing i mm -hmm. thought they lingered on it too long when i saw evazon and ponda baba i i i almost like disconnected from the movie entirely i was like this is wasting my time this yeah. is not necessary why would they be on jetta mm -hmm. and they're gonna be in the next movie on tatooine why am i like why yeah. would i see them in the next movie there's, there's Espe especially when you weigh in the fact uh, they just happened to have left Jeddah before the Death Star blew it up, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, what's the timing on that? Having them in that city actually creates a story inconsistency in a sense, unless they were, like, walking right back to their ship. So I guess we need an anthology movie that is the story of Dr. Evazan and Ponda Baba so I know how they got off of Jeddah. I'm sure there's going to be a comic book series coming out very soon explaining Probably. this. But, you know, I mean, that that to me didn't really bother, because at first I was like, wait a minute, why are they? But then it's like, okay, they're they're in a city which is basically inhabited by, you know, truck drivers in space. You but know, not, I mean, this is... It just but, wasn't necessary. I mean, it was, it was, just, it was because it's like, hey, oh, hey, look at this. You know, there was yeah. that. The other thing was, you know, R2 and 3PO, where it's just like, oh, hey, they were able to shoehorn them into this movie. <laughs> right. Um, you know, those were the only two things. But most of the stuff in, in here was stuff that I thought was integrated really well, like, you know, Mon Mothma and, you know, Bail well, Organa. Well, Mon Mothma was a, was a part of it from the beginning. Bail yeah. Organa, I go back and forth. I think that he was there in a later part of the film. But I well, think yeah, they, isn't they there went like, back what, and shoehorned him in because the first time that Mon Mothma is taught like the you know the scene where I rebel was taken out of mm -hmm. Bail Organa steps out of the shadows and there's you know there's there's this shot of like Jin looking at him and then they go back and he he doesn't say anything he doesn't interact you don't see him in any other shots I, I think there was because I remember the first time when people were like you know Bail Organa's in the movie there was like some sort of like reaction shot of like a crowd like outdoors, I think probably on Yavin, where like yeah. someone in the background turns and they're like, look, that's Jimmy Smith's. And everyone's like, that's not you. Can, maybe that's Jimmy Smith's, but you can't really tell, you know. So yeah. in that that scene, I don't think was in the movie. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that could be. But it, it, that doesn't really bother me so much. You know, it. it oh, I'm it not saying felt, it bothered me. I'm just saying I mean, that like I they, could tell that it was. You know, yeah, right. Pieced in there, 
Maybe maybe a better example would be you know using those guys uh, the the different pilots in uh, yeah <laughs> I mean yeah, I thought it was it was a nice nod for, uh, it, mm. and you know I mean it it's it's okay I, I I can forgive that or whatever I mean the things that bothered me in Force Awakens were things like yeah the chess set or like pulling out the the um the the probe the no, see the, the pulling out and... the pr- pulling pulling out the probe. I was fine with that. That's the type of callback where I'm fine. The only problem I had with the chess scene, I had no other problem with it except for the fact that it went back and it had two shots of it, and the yeah. second one lingered and panned up. I was like, "You're taking too long with it." Like that's you're you're, well, you're. I mean, I think they did the same thing with the probe. You know, if he would have just like, because he's like taking things out of the bag, and if he would have just taken the thing out, and it's like, hey, there goes the probe. But he's like, what is this thing? Oh, I don't know. And then throws it off to the oh, side. Oh, it lasts you know? for like half a second. Uh, that one was no it's problem about a, at all. It's about a quarter second too long. I mean, they they have they have a, a probe droid floating by in the background. Um, you know when they're when they're going around, but it's it's not like even a different model. It's the Empire Strikes Back probe droid. But that's fine because it's like well they you know they make those and they're gonna have those things. Oh sure around. sure, but I and the thing is I'm not like trying to step on the movie. I'm just yeah. saying like I really think there was just as much. Uh, you know I I find it interesting because people will beat up on one thing for callbacks, yeah. but they will not beat up on another thing for callbacks. They you know they. They won't even beat up on, uh, and nor should they. Revenge of the Sith for Chewie doing the, uh, you know, the Tarzan yell the way he yeah. did in Return of the Jedi during a battle situation. You know, the, well, sort will of, you beat okay. up on it for having Chewie in that movie at all? Because I would, I, I wouldn't. I I understand the argument for why he wasn't necessarily necessary, but I didn't mind it. It's like Yoda's like I have good relations with the Wookiees, so I'm going to go to Kashyyyk. And on an entire planet full of Wookiees, mm-hmm. Yoda's hanging out with like the king of the Wookiees and Chewbacca. Because you know why not, right? Hey, Chewbacca's the coolest <laughs> damn Wookiee that ever existed, and I, I will mean, not have sure. you. Sure, no. What about che- what, what? What's his, his son's name? Lumpawarump, Lumpy. I don't <laughs> Lumpy, think Lumpy yeah. was born by that point. Okay, all right, fair enough. Lump- Lumpy's too young in the Star Wars holiday. What they should have had is they should have had Itchy. Yeah. Yeah. It should, it, you know, I, it, yeah, it should have been Tarful and Itchy, but I think oh. Farewell Itchy wouldn't have sounded <laughs> as well. Perhaps not, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, so, well. uh, okay, now, one of the things, we haven't really, um, you know, looked at uh, Star Wars editors yet, but one of the the credits that you pointed out to me that I, I, I missed initially was additional editing by Stuart Baird. Yeah. Who is yeah. a legendary editor for being known for, uh, you know, I, I, I believe you said in Mission Impossible 2, he literally edited the poop out of it. Well, like that, he, yeah. He, he that's, excised that's the, everything bad. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, well, he's he's a very well-established editor in his own right. You know, he's he edited Superman the movie. Skyfall. He edited Skyfall, Casino Royale. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a very, very good editor on his own but you know one of the things which he you know a niche which he found is you know fixing movies that have problems with them you know i i actually when i was in film school i had a a teacher who was an assistant editor in hollywood and you know she she would talked about how you know Stuart baird was like the editor in residence at i i think paramount or, or something like that i think i'm pretty sure it was paramount and you know basically if a movie was having problems or, or whatever, you know, he would just go in and, you know, tinker with it. I mean, that was like his job, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's, you know, what what he was sort of like uh, known for being really good at is, you know, fixing uh, movies that have problems. And, you know, you'll see this credit in a lot of movies like additional editing by or associate editor, you know, that kind of thing. And lots of times it's people who are like very well-established editors who, you know, have been brought in to maybe smooth out some rough edges. And, uh, yeah, he did this very famously with two movies in quick succession back in the early aughts. One was Mission Impossible 2 and the other was Lara Croft Tomb Raider. And as a thank you for fixing two of their big blockbusters, 
uh, Paramount gave him the directing gig on Star Trek Nemesis. And the rest is history, yeah. you know? So I'm thinking that there's a scenario here where, oh. you know, Rogue One <laughs> is uh, in some trouble. So they call in Stuart Baird yeah. to fix it. He does, obviously, because everyone loves the movie. And yeah, Boba Fett, directed by Stuart Baird, coming to you in uh, 2019 or whatever it is. But does everybody love the movie? You You have... Your finger on one pulse, I have a finger on another pulse. Of the people you have spoken to, what is the net reaction? Is it is it breaking even where some people hate it, some people love it? Or is it net positive where a lot of people love it? What what's it what's it feel like from your perspective? Everyone that I've talked to has uh loved it. You know, I my 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 wife, you know, was just saying yesterday, my wife's not a huge Star Wars fan, you know. Um, she and her, her Star Wars fandom tends to skew to some weird places. I mean, Empire Strikes Back is her favorite, no doubt. After that, you know, it, it's like Force Awakens and then, you know, it was, I think, Revenge of the Sith, but I, I think she's placed this ahead of that. She's like, those are basically mm. the... I mean, she said last night, <laughs> she's like, Empire... Uh, Force Awakens, this, and Revenge of the Sith, all the other movies can burn. <laughs> interesting. That is definitely an interesting perspective. So, so she liked it a lot. You know, my, my friend Matt, who I saw it with, and my friend Zach, who I saw it with, they both liked it a lot as well. Um, you know, that that seems to be the, the general reaction. I did see one little kid <laughs> coming mm. out of the theater. He must have been about seven and he was walking with his dad and they're walking out of the theater and he goes that movie was terrible (laughs) (laughs) bless him for being an an independent thinker you gotta love it you gotta love it he's not he is not gonna bow to peer pressure that kid's (laughs) good that kid's got a future yep yep so so what about uh, the people who you've talked to? What it's they really interesting because there's one person uh, who has apparently fallen in love with it. Actually, another host here on the Nerd Party Network. Uh, if you pay attention to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the nerd party, you will uh, have seen Matt Rushing's review. And he effusively praises it. He, he thinks it's the bee's knees, as it were. And I've spoken with another host uh, I mentioned earlier, Sean Eastridge, who had a more tepid take on on the film and was like, yeah, that first act was really kind of a mess. And I can't completely disagree with him. I can say that I I saw it on the opening Thursday and then I saw it uh, the night after, you know, while we're recording this and. Uh, my reaction the second time was better. I think that probably because uh, I knew what to expect from the beginning. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I, I don't like the way that this is, you know, pieced together in the beginning. But, you know, I'll get over this. I know that it gets better. Because um, it really does smooth itself out and flow a lot better once you get past that, like, first 30 minutes. But uh, one of my daughters was able to go with me. Uh, the other one was sick. Uh, to the second showing, and she has ranked it. Uh, Force Awakens is her favorite, and mm-hmm. this is number two, and Revenge of the Sith is number three. So, Wait, what's number two? Number two is this, Rogue One. Oh, okay, okay. Number one is Force Awakens. Number two is Rogue One. Number three is Revenge of the Sith for her. And, like, we went through the whole list of, of everything that, you know, that she loves and everything. <laughs> I just, you know... Uh, I, I have to admit that I went into this with absolutely nothing support. I didn't read Catalyst. I stopped watching previews. I muted the the living bejeebers out of this on Twitter. Okay? Yeah. I got to know. I have to ask this question. Did Catalyst help your enjoyment of this film at all? It's interesting, and you know, I think that we should do a show. Honestly, I don't know if you're planning on reading Catalyst, but I, I would, do. I would love to have a conversation about you know the difference between 
how this movie and how Catalyst plays having seen the movie first or read the book first, you know, because, you know, having the two different perspectives. I mean, I was texting you, like, when <laughs> I was yes. reading the book and basically saying, like, um, <laughs> boy, you know, everyone's saying, like, you have to read Catalyst before you see Rogue One. And I'm like, I, f- I f- have a feeling, I-, I-, I sent it to you, I'm like, you know, I bet you could tell me the plot of Catalyst. Oh, that's right. From having seen the trailers to Rogue One, you know, and you know, I, I was, I was very much. I mean, I thought that that the book was fine, but at the same time, I'm like, what is the point of this? I have Seriously. a feeling that Catalyst probably stays focused on um, a couple of things. One of them probably being the uh, the the animus and competitiveness between um, Krennic and Tarkin. That's probably one of the major threads. Uh, probably uh, because it's named Catalyst, it has to do with um, Galen Erso's uh, discovery of you know what is going to make the Death Star tick, um, just based on the title, and uh, that most like I mean that that's probably the two big things I'm willing to bet. A- I mean- am I am I in the ballpark here? You've pretty much nailed it. I mean, I, I would go. say I would say that the the main thing, and you know, you know, which which you know, a, a lot of people have been praising, is that it really develops the relationship between Galen and Krennic. See, I got enough of that from the opening scene of this, though. Like, I, I mean, felt that the dialogue and the performance was enough. Like that, that was the thing is if there's one thing that I wanted more of out of this film, it was more Krennic because mm-hmm. I liked the character. I liked the way he was performed. I liked the way he was written. And in a sense, I will always wonder, did they sacrifice some of him to have uh, resurrected Tarkin? You know, like, would it have been a different experience? Would it have been a better experience for lack of a better word if Tarkin didn't show up until the end and said I'm taking command of this thing and then Krennic being like oh screw screw you I'm going off and then you know basically Tarkin assassinates him while he's out on the tower or something like it almost feels like Krennic got robbed of a spotlight see I don't know to me if if they would have done that I would have just been like oh Obviously, the only reason why they did that is because they needed a proxy for Tarkin, since there's no way that they could, you know, get Peter Cushing back in this movie. There's no way that you could have Tarkin in this movie for more than a shot or two, right? (laughs) Yeah. um, But no, I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't have a problem with that, with their relationship or the way that, you know, that that plays. I, I mean... And it's it's interesting because like I mean I I sent those texts to you where I was like this is completely point pointless catalyst is very much not something which you you need I I, I don't remember if it was a text or if it was a tweet where you said I don't know why I keep wasting my time with these things <laughs> I think that might have been a text <laughs> Sorry I didn't mean to out you there on that one No no that's okay <laughs> But you know what's interesting is in that very first scene right where where you see you know Krennic show up and he starts having the conversation and and you see you know Lyra and Jin cuz Lyra plays a big role in the book as well right yeah. i i couldn't help but you know think about the book and as i was watching the scene i was like wow you know i'm really kind of glad that i read that book because it's going to make this scene play much better like having that backstory and everything i really felt like that scene was an extension of the book that i had just read now interesting what's interesting about that i guess is that's the very first thing you see and i'm like wow oh yeah i feel like this is you know the next chapter in the book i'm i'm really glad that i read the book after that first scene it does not make any difference at all you know it does not add anything to the rest of of the movie, but it adds a lot to that one scene at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. Okay. So That's read a the, whole book for one scene. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Connected universe. 
Hashtag I mean, there's there's some cool that. stuff like you know because all of these books and some other things like the cartoons and stuff too have been sort of like you know dancing around the idea of the kyber crystals and you know them yeah. being used for the death star and everything like that and obviously that plays a big role in catalyst i mean when they actually said the word like kyber crystal in rogue one i was like what you mean you're actually going to talk about this thing that's been in the expanded universe, you know, canon, new canon for, you know, the past, like, two years or whatever it is? We're um, actually going to deal with you know, this well, in a real Ky- movie? Kyber crystals are, that that's original. If you go all the way back to Splinter of the Mind's Eye, uh, yeah. that, that was a kyber crystal. Okay, and, yeah. And uh, there was, uh, you know, in some of the original treatments of the movies, kyber crystals uh, played a large role. Um, at least by reference, you know, that, you know, including the Kyber crystals is, is a very cool thing. Um, and, and I think that's the type of callback that I like most. One of the things that I was very glad about is when she was watching the hologram and he says, I've built a weakness in the death star. I was like, I swear to God, if you say exhaust port, I'm done. I'm walking out of this because I'm done with decades of people devaluing the fact that Luke basically did a miraculous thing and saying, uh-huh. oh, well, everybody could have made it because somebody else took that shot and they didn't make it. It's because they didn't have the... F- anyway, um, the fact that he highlighted that the weakness was a concussive blast to the reactor would cause the whole system to fail. He didn't say you have to shoot down the... Th- he just said, just hit the reactor somehow. Right. I'm like, okay. That sets up, you could infiltrate it, you could do whatever you want with it to, to get in there. Um, so here's a question with the, with the tie-ins. Do you think that those were uh, native to it? Or do you think that they were later sort of uh, editing retcons that they I threw think, in there? I think they were native to it. I mean, a, a lot of the reason why I think they were native to it is because of who was doing the revisions and everything. I get the impression that Tony Gilroy has never heard of a kyber crystal up until he read the That's third draft point. of this screenplay. That's a fair point. But like I saw Gary, I mean Gary Witta, you know, I I'm I was so happy for him because like you see him he's been on Twitter like nonstop since the premiere, basically just living the dream, you know, here and everything and he's been, you know, rather open about, you know, the process and everything like that he's like some people were you know rather critical of of me for you know some opinions that i had about the prequels you know back in the day or whatever but you know for this movie i i put in a a whole bunch of stuff from the prequels you know and everything else you know and the fact that he writes for rebels you know he's written two episodes now and everything like that i mean i think that it was definitely built in from the beginning you know, I okay. mean, I, th- I think it was Pablo Hidalgo said, you know, Rogue One has references to everything from the original. Right. He, he said he the said prequels. there's no that there's no split in the timelines. It's all one giant. Right. He, he said that's how that they draw from. That's how the filmmakers were treating it. You know, you know, they, they saw them as all just stories. And I, right. yeah, I, I mean, I, I buy that. You know, I think it's cool that they did that, you know, because I mean, that's. It, it makes sense. It, it 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 lends legitimacy to these other sort of like secondary projects. Now, you know? as as sort of a sort of a final thought, we've talked about editing. We've talked about uh, <laughs> Edwards. We've talked about the writing. In terms of the cinematography, we've mentioned the camera work. Was there anything about this where you would sit down and say, "I can tell this came from the guy who did Zero Dark Thirty. This is a Greg Fraser movie." I mean, there's some stuff, although I have to say not nearly as much as I had anticipated, you know? I yeah. mean, there there were there were times where I was like, oh, yeah, that feels like Zero Dark Thirty or whatever. But for the most part, I was kind of like, um, it's really well shot, you know, but it, it has its own kind of unique style, which is not very um, similar to Zero Dark Thirty in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I think that maybe the color palette, you know, that kind of thing. But, I mean, obviously the budget was much larger. And, I mean, one of the things that really kind of stood out to me was, you know, like 
the fact that they shot it in that ultra Panavision 70, which seeing that credit at the end of the movie was just like, oh, God, yeah. it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, but I really liked the way that the movie looked because of that, the way that the, the lenses, you know, had that sort of like anamorphic distortion. You know, a lot of the lens flares and everything I thought were gorgeous, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what really kind of stood out to me more than anything was okay. was that. What, what, what about you? No, I I I uh I thought I could detect a bit of it in the you know in the battle sequences like the the running around with the troops and everything. I was like, yeah, okay, I could see, I could see sort of a connective tissue, even though one is daytime. Um, but yeah, I think I think by and large there was this. I would be more tempted to say this looks like a Gareth Edwards movie than this looks like a Greg Fraser movie. And I think that was one of my questions when we were talking about Zero Dark Thirty was. You know how much of a hand was Fraser going to have in the look versus Edwards, and how much collaboration? And I think that it is a collaboration, and I think that, uh, I, but I still think that this has that that Edwards stamp to it. This looks like he did it. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, uh, Fraser, he's got a new movie coming out, like a, a Mary Magdalene movie coming out next. Really. Year. Yeah, which he shot. I don't. I don't think he used these lenses, but he did shoot it in the Alexa sixty-five thing. And um, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see if if that you know how how much of an impact this movie had on you know his later work. It it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it it will. And you know, uh, I would say that uh, we would be interested to know what other members of the audience uh, have to say about it what did you see you know going on the journey with us up to this point to you know the journey to rogue one if we can reuse a marketing line <laughs> um so you know reach out to us on the nerdparty.com slash contact and uh you know look up you know great shot kid let us know was there something stylistic that jumped out at you where you said oh wow that you know hey guys we talked about this and you, and you missed that um maybe we'll have to uh do something about the score and what did we see that was very Jacino esque, uh, brought into this Star Wars universe, you know, because obviously the score sounds different. Um, you can also uh, go ahead and reach out to the network itself on Twitter at Join Nerd Party. And uh, Mike, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on uh, Trek.fm doing uh, From There to Here, which is our daily rewatch of, of Star Trek, where we look at all 729 episodes over the so span close. of the year. So close to the end, Mike. Yep, yep, yep. Stay on target. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then you can also find me on Trek.fm doing Stage 9, which is a show about the people who make Star Trek, along with John Mills. Yes, yes, we we do stage nine over on Trek FM, and that is uh, that is a hoot and a holler. And, and speaking of Stuart Baird, who worked on the Bond franchise, we just covered Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, with Michelle uh, because, Yeoh. Yeah, yeah, Michelle Yeoh. Uh, you can also find me here on the uh, on the Nerd Party Network doing aggressive negotiations with Matt Rushing. You can find me over uh, co-hosting Wars with Nerds with my pal Craig. And if you want to find me online, just look for Kessel Junkie. Uh, that's where I am, where I will tell you that you would be very wise to go to lootcrate.com slash nerdparty and use the code nerdparty to get yourself a nifty little re- subscription to Loot Crate, where you get a box of goodies sent to you once a month. You know, sign up for a year, give yourself a little uh, holiday treat uh, in honor of uh, having seen Rogue One uh, on this wonderful journey through an annual Star Wars masterpiece, I guess. So tune in next week when we're going to bring you a little treat where Mike and I are going to divulge to everybody. If we were running a film festival and we were doing a double feature series, what we would pair up with the original Star Wars trilogy and why. 